0: Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. As we're getting ready to begin, I want to give a special welcome to anyone who is celebrating Shabbat with us for the first time. Glad to have you with us. If you're in the sanctuary, anyone here for the first time? Welcome. So glad you're here. It's it's great to have you. It's always a, a privilege. And I hope that you'll come next door for some refreshments and we can get to know you. And for those of you who are online and joining us for the first time celebrating Shabbat with us, it's great to have you with us as well. So it's... A wonderful time to be together, and I, I want to use this time to weave together a, a, a few beautiful threads, if we can, from the Scripture. The Hanukkah story from the Gospel of John, and the Hanukkah story is an interesting one because it's the only Jewish holiday I can think of that's not mentioned in the Tanakh in the Torah or the prophets or the writings, but it's mentioned in the New Testament scriptures. And so it has a special place, and Yeshua celebrated Hanukkah, as we'll read. And so I want to weave weave together something about that with the story about how Jacob became Israel and the tenacious faith of Jacob that caused God to give him a new name. And as we're reading about Yeshua and Hanukkah, I want you to think about this as we're getting ready for Hanukkah because Hanukkah is a great time to consider tenacious faith. It was a time of great challenge for the Jewish people, and Hanukkah faith is truly... Tenacious faith. It doesn't give up. It doesn't shrink back, even in the face of severe difficulty. And there's more to Hanukkah than ladkas and dreidels. Tenacious faith, Hanukkah faith, is connected to depending on God and trusting God. And when we have tenacious faith, we know from experience that God himself is faithful and that he won't leave us or forsake us. Tenacious faith keeps holding on to Hashem, keeps holding on to his word. And tenacious faith, as Yeshua teaches us, keeps knocking at God's door. If you've got something to knock on, just knock with me for a moment. You got anything? I grew up in such situations, we learned, yeah, if you had to, yeah, knock on wood, and we'd knock on our heads. Um, Tenacious faith keeps knocking at God's door, keeps asking as well. Yeshua teaches us to keep asking, confident that the Lord will answer. And sometimes I know what we really want from the Lord and what we really need is is a simple and a clear answer. And that, in fact, can be tenacious faith working inside of us. We're trying to get something clear so that we can hold on to that clarity and that simplicity and we can give ourselves to the Lord through that. So sometimes... When we're asking for clarity and simplicity from the Lord, it's, it's really tenacious faith at work in us. It's part of the Hanukkah story that we read about in John chapter 10. So you can turn there. John 10, 22 is, is, uh, is going to be a key passage for us. We'll look at some other things as well. But I want to just remind you that people are coming to Yeshua and they're asking him, to be simple, and to be clear with them. And they say, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Just make it clear. And it's almost the same question that people had asked Yochanan the Immerser, who is known in American English as John the Baptist. No, his name wasn't John. And he wasn't a Baptist. But he did immerse. But they were asking him this question. He was calling people to repentance and to be immersed in water. It's it's read in written about in John chapter 1. And they ask him, Are you the one? Are you the one who we're waiting for? And he says, I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah but I'm preparing the way for him. That was Yochanan's answer. And then later, Yochanan was in prison. He was in trouble. And he sent his disciples to ask Yeshua the direct question if Yeshua was the one. Is this the one? Are you the Messiah? And Yeshua answered, this was his answer, tell Yochanan what you've heard And what you've seen. And then he calls out these details. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are hearing the good news. That combination of incredible miracles was to be a way of recognizing who the Messiah was. And so Yeshua says, well, you tell them what you've seen and what you've heard. And then Yeshua says, and blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense at me. So clarity and simplicity, that's what they're asking for when they come to Yeshua. And we read about it in John chapter 10. That's what people asked Yeshua in Jerusalem during Hanukkah. So starting in verse 22... It says, at that time, the Feast of Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem. Now, your Bible may be deficient in English. It may say the Feast of Dedication. It, I say deficient because it, it's, leave some, it's leaving something out. Hanukkah in Hebrew means dedication. And so uh, many English translations have a footnote that says, that is, Hanukkah. Well, it would have been better and more recognizable to just say it that way. The Feast of Hanukkah. The Feast of Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Yeshua was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon. So Yeshua was there in Jerusalem at Hanukkah. And he's in the um, portico of Solomon, which happened to be a favored gathering place for those who are waiting for Messiah, and later it would be, um, it would be almost the hangout for the disciples of Yeshua in the temple. Then, verse twenty-four: Some Judeans surrounded him and began saying to him, "How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, and how do you say the Messiah in Hebrew?" ha Hamashiah, ha The is Ha-Mashiach. They form one word together. Ha-Mashiach. Mashiach means the anointed one. And do you know how to say Mashiach in Greek? Christos. Right. So you can say Messiah in English, and it, it's a way of saying Mashiach, and you can say Christos in Greek, and it's a way in Greek of saying Messiah. And you can say Christ in English, and it's sort of like using dedication, the feast of dedication. For Jewish years, they'll hear Christ and they'll not think, oh, you're talking about Messiah. They'll think about somebody else as if he were somebody else. But you know who first used Christos for Messiah? It was Greek-speaking Jews who wrote the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And they used it for themselves, not as a perfect translation, but as a word that meant something to them. When they read Christos, they understood it was about Mashiach. And so those two Words became interchangeable in the Jewish community at that time. They're not interchangeable today, but it's useful for us to keep that in mind. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. That's such a good question, isn't it? Yeshua answered, I told you and yet you don't trust me. I told you. Another way of saying it is, I, I did tell you. I, I have told you. I already told you. Or I keep telling you. Those are all good ways of communicating what Yeshua said. I'm telling you plainly, and yet you don't trust me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So Yeshua says something that's sort of like what he said to Yochanan's disciples. Tell Yochanan what you see, because what I do on behalf of my Father, these things testify of me. That's the evidence. That's the answer. Now, as a result of that, As a result of the evidence, and as a result of the clear and simple answer, it shouldn't satisfy everyone, right? Everyone should agree then. Ah, so you are the Messiah, thanks. But that's not what happens. People don't agree. Some agree, some don't. Now, if you think you know how to tell everybody so that everybody will agree, then you're thinking you can do better than Yeshua. I don't think we can. Because it's not just about how we tell it, it's about who hears it and with what condition that's in their heart. And Yeshua's pointing to that. He's saying, I've been asked and I've answered, but you don't believe you don't trust me. Now here's the reason he gives. He says, you don't trust me. You don't believe me. You don't believe my answers. So because you don't trust me, when I answer you, you don't trust my answers. I've given you answers, but you don't believe me or my answers. And what that convinces Yeshua of, he says really clearly, You're not part of my flock. You're not my sheep. Verse 27, Yeshua says it this way. My sheep listen to my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. So Yeshua is saying, here I've given an answer. I've I've tried to be very clear with you, but you don't listen to me. You don't put into practice what I tell you. You don't heed what I tell you to do. You don't follow me. You go in a completely different direction. And then Yeshua keeps going on. Verse 28. I give my sheep eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now if you read beyond that, you'll see everybody sort of understood what Yeshua meant by that, but they took it two different ways. Some people took it this way. Wow, the Father and Son are echad. That's incredible. They're one. And such people could later say the Messiah is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. The Father and the Son are one. They're echad. And other people took it as blasphemy. So they heard the same thing. Some heard it as bad news because they took offense. Now we understand something about what Yeshua added on in his statement to Yochanan's disciples. He gave all this evidence and he said, Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense. Why? Because some people will take offense. They'll hear the truth, but because they're offended, and because it doesn't fit into their view, it just seems not to be true. They're not ready to listen to Yeshua. They weren't ready to follow him. And whatever Yeshua said to such people was used against him. They weren't blessed because they were taking offense at Yeshua. That's why Yeshua said, blessed are those who aren't offended. Because there is a blessing when you're not offended. As I was studying this week, I remembered this incident that was very unlike anything I had ever done before. Well, not exactly because it involved arguing with someone. And I grew up thinking that arguing was like a family sport. And we would argue at the table at dinner, and we would argue later. And winning the argument was like fun. How many grew up in such families where arguing was, was fun and? Sporty, even. Okay, so a friend of ours who was raised in a nominally Episcopalian family, somehow when we were together, he brought up something that seemed like an unlikely argument. And he said, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. It's like, where'd that come from? I didn't say where that come from. I thought, here's a chance for some sport. A little argument, it could be fun. And I thought, I see how I could win with him. Now, that's what was unprecedented, because here I am, a Jewish kid, arguing with, a nominal Episcopalian trying to show he's wrong, that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Unprecedented for me. So I took this position. I said it's, it's not a matter of whether he could be or couldn't be. It's a matter of whether he is. So it's a matter of fact. It's not opinion. So if he is, it doesn't really matter what you say. Because he is. And if he's not, it doesn't really matter what you say. Because he's not. So either he is or he isn't. One or the other. And he couldn't argue. And so I won the argument. Which was a real problem for me. Because afterwards, I started thinking, is he? (laughs) Or isn't he? Uh Uh-oh. You see, that's a dangerous question. Is he or isn't he? Not do I want him to be or do I wish he were or whatever, but is he or isn't he? And that reminded me of something. I want you to recognize what's going on in these uh, stories that we're reading about in John, about the people coming to Yeshua at Hanukkah and those who came to Yochanan in chapter 1. Not at Hanukkah, but when he was immersing. It shows something. It shows that the people of that time, the Jewish people of that time, had questions about Messiah, and they wanted to know, who is who is Messiah? Is he here now? And they wanted to know, is this one Messiah? Is, is this one Messiah? And that connected to an experience I had in Budapest when we were preparing for an outreach in Budapest, a Messianic Jewish outreach, And we got summoned to a meeting of Jewish leaders. And when I say summoned, I I mean this. Our office got a call from someone saying, your people need to be here tomorrow at 10 o'clock or else. Something like that. And so that was one of my responsibilities to be one of the people there to be the one who actually had to represent us and speak. And so I showed up, and my friend, Messianic Rabbi David Schneier, was with me. He was an attorney in his previous life. So we're there, and we're in a small room with a group of Jewish leaders, all of whom are... um, generally reasonable and sophisticated and reminded me of my father and the manner and the bearing that they had, and even in the tone of voice that they would use. And so it felt like I was with people I was familiar with, even though I didn't know any of these personally. And they began to threaten us, which was unusual. And they were threatening us about what would happen that would be terrible if we continued with this public outreach. And there was a certain moment when one of them was just getting angry and his voice didn't betray it, but I was watching his hands and his hands, which had been very still, started shaking. And so I noticed that. And one of their arguments was, if we do this, it will provoke anti-Semitism. And so I said, well, how's that? And they said, the Christians will say we're stealing their God. And so I said, you know, there are some Christians who know that the God they worship is the God of Israel. And those hands started shaking. They were having, just betraying, you know, like the internal conflict. And and then they started saying more things. And I said, "You, you know that Yeshua was born a Jew in Israel into a Jewish family circumcised on the eighth day, dedicated on the thirtieth day, pidyon haben, raised as a Jew. And it made more anxiety for them. And then I said something. I said, let's be honest with each other. There's only one reason why you called us here. You know that Jewish people Are interested in this question, is Yeshua the Messiah? Is Jesus the Messiah? Because if no Jews were interested, you could just ignore us. And I said something like this, you may be able to stop us, but you cannot stop our people from asking this question. We've been asking this question for 2,000 years. And you can't stop that. It, it, it was clear to me that there is a yearning inside of our people to find the answer, the plain and simple answer. Now, once we find the answer, it doesn't mean that we'll agree with the answer. But there's a yearning and a part of it's curiosity, but part of it is born out of a sincere spiritual interest, an intellectual curiosity and interest, and a desire to know for sure. Now it's complicated. The reactions are complicated. But as I was thinking about Yeshua and Hanukkah and how the question was, okay, are you the Messiah? And Yeshua says, let me simplify and make it colloquial. And he said, yep. And they said, well, could you be clear? Yep. I'm making fun of the the language because Yeshua, in a sense, was just saying, I am. I've told you. I'll tell you again. You're not believing me because you don't believe me. Because you don't listen to me and put into action what I tell you because your hearts are convinced of something else. So it's not a question of, am I giving you a clear answer? It's not a question of the evidence. That's why later the apostles would say that God pours out the gift of repentance that leads to life. There's that aspect of turning to God. So Yeshua understood that there was interest, there was a desire for clarity, and he gave the answer, but he said, that's not enough for some of you. And I think it's useful for us to know that it's not enough. A clear answer is not enough. A good answer is not enough. Evidence is not enough for some people. But for those whose hearts are genuinely seeking and whose hearts are open, it is enough. And so we need to know that at Hanukkah time, there will be hearts that are open. And we should be prepared to give clear answers, and even at Christmas time, a lot of messianic Jews do not like the word Christmas. So you know we we call it Christmas <laughs> Just to make it more palatable, but I, I remember being at the gym with a Jewish doctor who found out I was a Messianic rabbi. And he said to me, Christmas is my favorite time of the year. And I said, why? And he said, everything's decorated so nice, and people are nice. It's the one time of the year that people try to act nice. And he said, I like it. I thought that's a good answer from him. That's a good answer. But it reminded me of this fact that at Hanukkah and at Christmas, Jewish people are thinking, is this one the Messiah? And not only that, Gentile people are thinking, Is this Messiah Jewish? And so there's great opportunity. It doesn't mean everybody's going to take advantage of it, but we should be ready ourselves for those that will. Now, I love the fact that Hanukkah is one of those Jewish holidays that helps us find answers to really essential questions about God and life. Because at Hanukkah, we're remembering that the Seleucid Greeks had conquered the land of Israel. They defiled the Jerusalem temple, and it was no longer a place that was dedicated to the worship of the God of Israel. Rather, it become a place of idolatry. And the Seleucid Greek emperor, Antiochus, who also had the title Antiochus Epiphanes or Epiphanes, considered himself to be the embodiment of God and even God, God in the flesh. The Epiphany of God, that was one of his titles, the manifestation of God. And some of the Roman Caesars, thought of themselves the same way. They considered themselves to be the manifestation of God. And same for Egyptian pharaohs, who thought of themselves as being the manifestation of God. And so when the Maccabees revolted against Antiochus, they were also revolting against false claims by kings who said they were the Lord but they were reclaiming the Jerusalem temple for God. So it's interesting. It's not coincidental. It's worth noting that on Hanukkah, in Jerusalem, in the very temple that the Jewish people had there, Yeshua gives a plain and clear and simple answer. This temple was dedicated again to the God of Israel. It had been defiled. It was time to clean it up, and that's what Hanukkah was all about. And so it's it's during that time of tenacity, of tenacious faith, when Yeshua is answering questions, it's significant that the, the reality of Hanukkah was a rejection of all of those powerful people who had claimed to be gods in the manifestation of God, but Yeshua wasn't dancing around because of that history. He answered plainly that he was Messiah, Mashiach. And I hope that we can use such clarity ourselves during Hanukkah and the Christmas season because this year they overlap, by the way. Sometimes they're not even in the same way. So the readings this time of year can be useful to us because the Torah and the scriptures that we read about and synagogues everywhere read about, speak of a number of different appearances of the Lord. And week after week, we're reading in Torah about different moments when the Lord appeared. And so as we're preparing for Hanukkah, let's read about several more appearances of God in in Torah, because they'll strengthen our faith. They will strengthen our understanding and build tenacious faith. And Jacob became... Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Because he had tenacious faith. And so let's read his story. And we're going to go through this part pretty quick. But I want you to see this pattern. Genesis 31 verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. I'll be with you. It's now time. Remember, Jacob had gone out to this to the land where Laban was, to find a wife. He found two. God had promised him before when he was heading out that the Lord would be with him and everywhere that he went and that the Lord would bring him back to the promised land. So this was the moment to head back. The Lord says, now is the time. Go back. I'll be with you. And then going down to verse 10, Jacob recalls In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. And then the angel of God said to me, In the dream, Jacob, Yaakov, and I answered, He name me, here I am. So I, I want you to connect for a moment what's happening in that moment that the angel calls Jacob by name, and what Yeshua said. Yeshua said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And he said, I call them by name. So there is this thematic connection between what happened with Jacob, with the angel of the Lord, and what happens with Yeshua later. Jacob answers, Hineni. Remember what Yeshua said. What's a hallmark of a disciple? They listen to the Lord. They respond to the Lord. That's what Jacob is actually doing right here. The Lord says, Yaakov. And Yaakov says, Hineni. Here I am. It's a positive response. Okay, now this is where the Hebrew gets complicated because it's simple. Verse 11, the angel of God said, Verse 12, And the Lord said, Look up and see that the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. So now the Lord is saying, I'm the Lord. So what's complicated is it's the angel of God who's saying, I'm the Lord. And so he's saying, I'm the same God of Bethel who met you when you were heading out. And so now we've got really important points. The angel of God says, I am the Lord. How do we make sense of that? Well, the easy answer is right. This is not one of your regular angels, folks. It's not a run-of-the-mill angel. And second, there's a connection being made between the appearance of God and the time decades earlier when God had appeared at Bethel. And so the Lord is saying, it's me. Be clear. It's me. And here's what to do. Leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So... At this moment, Jacob needs clarity, and the Lord gives him clarity. And the clarity maybe breaks some of his understandings and some ideas he might have, but not only that, it also is useful to us to understand how God works and how the Scriptures work. Most of the times when the Scriptures say the angel of God We see that God is manifesting himself in a way that people see as an angel or a man and the Lord. And so it's it's a special phrase that's used to, to help us understand that this is an appearance of God. Now here's the problem. Some people think God can't appear. Or, okay, he can appear in a dream, but not really appear but that doesn't really work. So Jacob in chapter 32 has an encounter with angels, regular angels, more angels. And then in verse 3, 32 verse 3, he sends messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, And the word in Hebrew for messengers and the word for angels are formed in the same way. They can be malache or malachim. And they really are from the same root and they can mean the same. But I think in verse 1, they are uh, heavenly angels on earth. And in verse 3, they're human angels carrying out um, some communication work. So Jacob's returning to the promised land and and he recognizes it's potentially dangerous for him to meet up with Esau and even life-threatening. And then there comes this other appearance of God and this one blurs a lot of boundaries. It's in verse 24. And is it a man? Is it an angel? Is it the Lord? And I'll give you the best answer I can. Yes. <laughs> Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And the Hebrew says man. He uses a normal word for man. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, and that helps us understand, Jacob is quite strong. He has stamina. The man touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that Jacob's hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. And Jacob replied, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what's your name? Yaakov, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Yaakov, but Yisrael. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and you've overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed them. Then verse 30, And so Jacob called the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So Jacob says he saw God face to face, and yet his life was spared. And I want you think carefully about this, because if you don't think it's possible for God to appear in this way, you will have trouble with the text here in Torah. And then you might try to make it say something different. As an example, Maimonides thought that the patriarchs experienced prophecy only in dreams, and yet Ramban Nachmanides didn't agree. And he, according to Maimonides, Jacob's wrestling with the angel must have been a dream. If so, as Nachmanides, why does Jacob limp afterwards? So here's another school of thought, Jewish thought that says, I don't buy it. I don't buy it it was just a dream. Because of what happened to Jacob physically. And so there's another Jewish scholar who tries to make sense of it and says that even night visions can spill over into our days. Now, why do you have to make it say something that it doesn't say? Because you're getting back to the question of fact. If God can come this way, if that's a fact, and if Torah is explaining it simply because he did come this way, then it overthrows some of these other ideas. Do you get that? And some of the Jewish scholars of old understood it. And they, they, were, they had a different view than Maimonides. And they said, no, it wasn't a dream. It was an appearance of God. And then some said, well, but, but that can't be. It had to be an angel. Or a man. Or a something. But it couldn't be God. Or could it? Yeah, it could. So let's let's assume Jacob knew what he was talking about. And he says, I wrestled with God. And let's assume God knew what he was talking about when he gave Jacob a new name, Yisrael, which means the one who wrestles with God. He could have said the one who dreams about wrestling with God. But there's a difference. And if you don't think the Bible can make that distinction, remember Joseph, who was called the dreamer, right? And he had dreams. And the scriptures are perfectly clear that some of what he saw was through dreams and just through dreams, right? And he was called the dreamer. So don't buy the idea that the Bible couldn't tell us this was a dream if it was a dream, and it wanted us to know it was a dream. It is saying something that breaks certain understandings. But here's the thing. As a Messianic Jew, it fits right in. One of the things I like about the Messianic Jewish point of view is that it works so much better than other points of view to understand some difficult parts of the Scriptures. It just works. It makes sense of some things. Now, in in days of old, people might have thought that if you explained away physicality and, and... that which is material, that you had done the job of saying God is outside of our universe. And if they thought that God spoke through a dream, then they didn't understand that that, uh, mass and energy are just transformations of the same thing. Right? Right? And they didn't know, maybe, that light can, can behave like a particle or a wave. And maybe they didn't know about entanglement, that, 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 that two subatomic particles separated by massive distances can interact as if they are simultaneous, because they are, even though that requires that whatever force is operating on them operates faster than the speed of light. So they didn't maybe know all that. And so maybe it satisfied their philosophical curiosity and framework and their understandings. And they thought, well, if it's just energy, that's okay. If it's it's just in a dream, that's okay. But even words go forth with physicality, not in a vacuum. Sound. So the idea that if you can just move it over to the realm of dreams or energy or something like that, you solve the the dilemma, you don't. The real dilemma is this. Can God come into this world that he created? And can he be effectively present here at a local place somewhere somewhere and still be present elsewhere. And the Torah tells us, yes, he can. He can. He can be present. And touching touching Jacob, this is what happened. Verse 31, the sun rose above Jacob as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of the hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And Nachmanides says, basically to Maimonides, so there, you get it? And Maimonides says, no, it's just a drink. And somebody tries to say, yeah, it was a dream, but you know, dreams can really affect you physically and and emotionally and psychologically, which is true, but that's not the explanation. That's not what it says. We're not going to have time to go into this next part in Genesis 35, verse 9 where it says, after Yaakov arrived from Badan Aram, God appeared to him again. Say the word again. Yeah. You know what that means? Again. Yeah. It's a simple word. It means what it says. Again. So, he appeared before, and he appeared again. And the the covenant with Abraham and Isaac is extended and personalized. It's given to Jacob in such a personal way. And then I want to close with an idea in verse 13. So it's Genesis 35 verse 13. Then God went up from Jacob there where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a standing stone in the place where the Lord had spoken with him, a stone pillar and Jacob poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, and he called the place where God spoke with him Bethel. So God appeared, and he went up. God went up, and that becomes like a trademark of the Lord. And then another interesting detail, Jacob pours oil, which means he anointed the pillar with oil, and that thematically connects with Messiah. Because Messiah is the anointed one. And so there is this thematic connection. And then there's this pattern. Genesis 17, I'll run through them quick. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Same phrasing. Luke 24, 51. While he was blessing them, Yeshua left them and was taken up into heaven. Yeshua goes up. Acts 1, verses 8 through 11. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, they watched as he was taken up, and a cloud hid from their sight. And then they were looking intently, suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Yeshua who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So going up, coming down, this is something God does. He did it with the patriarchs. He did it as Yeshua. He will do it again. It's one way that we recognize the Lord. He comes and then he goes on his timetable, in his way. Hanukkah is such a wonderful time to ponder the appearances of God, God in this world, the God of heaven, the God of earth. He comes down, he goes back up. That's the way he does things, folks. So when somebody says to you, could he have come as a baby? Yeah, And what's most important is, did he come in that way? Yes. Will that be compelling to everyone? No. Some will turn it into something else. And they'll say, oh, you just think like the Egyptians thought and so forth. They thought their king was God. And you say, big difference. We know the difference. We know the difference. I want to pray that your faith will be strong. And I want to pray for people who need plain and simple answers and who can give a decisive yes to Yeshua and say yes to Yeshua as Mashiach and Adonai. Because if you say yes to Yeshua, In this way, it'll turn this Hanukkah into the best Hanukkah you've ever had. It'll be an unforgettable time. Lord, we thank You for the gift of repentance that leads to life. We want to trust You and walk with You in this life of faith. And we pray for all those whose hearts are turning to You. Let them be plain and simple and say yes to You. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Don't forget that after the service, we will go next door to the Shalom Center for Tacos by Maria Perez and Dessert by Dreamette and the Rose family. And we're going to close with Aaron's blessing. And those of you who are watching by live stream or listening by podcast, would you consider a generous contribution you can go to our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving for all the details. And for everyone who is celebrating with us for the first time, I hope you'll join us next door. would like to get to know you as we're having fellowship and refreshments together. So let's close with Aaron's blessing. yisad shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone.